And now with acupuncture, I feel that there's more room for that. So I, I still like to be, to know that I'm not just making random stuff up. I like to know that I'm using my theory, but there is space for that instinct, that point sometimes when you have a feeling, you try it, and then, but in a way, that still is the scientific method because you are testing a theory, you are testing a hypothesis. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The practice of acupuncture is, in a sense, conversational. We put forth an idea with a needle and then look and listen for how the patient responds. As a recent guest of the podcast said, our medicine is one of discovery, not of obedience. That sounds right to me. We have our theories along with the whispers and admonitions from our teachers. There's the theory behind the procedures or the perspectives that we'd love to read in our books. But in the moment of doing our work, when it's just us, without the supportive scaffolding of another's experience or reputation, in those moments, what do you rely on? How do you navigate toward knowing that you're taking your patient along in an arc that leads to greater health and well-being? Another recent podcast guest gave me deep pause with this comment. The practice of medicine is proving to ourselves that it works. Hearing this reminded me of the moment somewhere in the middle of my acupuncture school education when I started to trust what we had been reading in our textbooks. Anybody can write anything into a book, but that doesn't make it real. What started to make it real was when a patient was able to describe the sensation that she felt that traveled down her leg to stomach 45 after having been needled at stomach 36. It's when reality confirms the books, when experience proves the theory, when a targeted treatment based on a clear diagnosis gives reliable feedback so as to allow us to see if we were right or not with our idea. That is when the medicine becomes alive. It's those moments when attending to the fluidity of the present moment, unencumbered by dogma or even the lure of past success that has allowed for this moment of discovery with this patient in this time, in this circumstance, and to be available to what is being asked for now. It's not hard in clinic to have a good idea, but being able to see how that idea plays out in the reality of our patient's experience, that indeed is a journey of discovery. It raises the question in my mind of, is it our accumulated experience from success, our knowing what has worked in the past that helps most in the clinic, or is it that distilled and refined sense of perception that allows for making appropriate decisions in the unfolding moment? I've had more than a few students ask me about the problem of not having confidence when they graduate and start a practice. In my mind, it is possible to have some competence when you graduate, but confidence, that comes later after you've had an opportunity to engage with patients on your own and work through enough difficult encounters so that a kind of anti-fragile resiliency naturally begins to arise. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with Vanessa Menendez-Covella on cultivating confidence. Vanessa 
came to the world of acupuncture from high tech, which on first glance, it might seem like these two pursuits have nothing to do with each other. But in fact, both are complicated interactive systems that both require a focused attention while at the same time attending to the wider environment. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account 
and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. It's not often that we get to have a conversation with someone who understands the source code of computers and the source code of Chinese medicine. Let's find out how Vanessa managed to bring these two seemingly unrelated worlds together. Heads up, they're not as different as you might have imagined. Vanessa Menendez Covella, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much. I'm so excited. After so many hours of listening to the podcast, I can't quite believe I'm in it now. Now you're in the podcast. Holy smokes. What, so what's it like to be in the podcast after like just being a regular old listener? I don't know. I'm a bit like, oh my God, am I going to come across as an idiot? <laughs> I come off as an idiot every day in my clinic. <laughs> I think there's actually a lot of value in being willing to come across as an idiot. Something that I learned in my previous career in technology was to be brave enough to ask what could come across as a dumb question, because in the world that I was working in, sometimes people would try to bamboozle you or kind of uh, get away with their plan by making you feel a little bit silly. And then I was like, you know what? I can actually, I'm okay with you thinking I'm, a, I'm silly, but I'm going to ask the question. That's brilliant. I mean, that totally works in Chinese medicine, especially if we've got a patient, we're not sure what's going on, or they maybe they're lying to themselves, or we just don't get what's going on. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I'm like listening to someone, it's like, I got no idea what's going on here. And it's hard to stop them from like a certain kind of frame of, or train of, of thought that they're on. And like a really bizarre question will stop them. Yes. And when I was younger, I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about, yeah, about people thinking less of me. But then I realized that it's actually a bit of a secret power in the sense that if people think, oh, she's not very bright or she doesn't belong here, then that gives me actually a lot of leeway to first surprise them, hopefully, but second, to get the conversation where I want it to be. So... You're originally from Spain. You live in the UK now. I don't know if you watched this show when you were a kid. When I was a kid, there was this TV show called Columbo. It's this detective. He's always wearing a trench coat and he's always got a cigar. And he's brilliant, but he comes across as just plain stupid. And he'll just act like this dummy and ask these ridiculous questions that always gets like the criminal to tip their hand. Yes, he's always like, just one, what was, what he used to say, just one more thing or something like that. That was Steve Jobs. (laughs) (laughs) They're all mixing inside my head. Steve Jobs, Columbo. (laughs) Same. So tell us about your previous career. What was that? So I grew up in Spain. I was born and grew up in Spain, in, um, in the north of Spain. It's called Asturias. It's very rainy and very green, which people don't expect when they think of Spain. But that's Sounds like Seattle. Yeah, a bit like that, actually. And then I studied computer science because when I was a kid, you either had to go into either a science kind of career or into the kind of arts and literature and things like that. 
I was always very sciencey. I, I liked maths. I love maths. So at the time, and we're going back to hmm, 1991, computer science was a very new thing. The, the degree, actually, in my local university was only, I don't know, about three, four years old. Yeah, no, that was brand new. I got into computers just before you did. And back then, you didn't need a degree. All you needed was yeah. to know how it worked and to be able to show people that you could do things. That's all you needed. And then about five years after I got into it, sounds about the time you did, then you needed a degree. Yeah, but now it's gone back to full circle because I've hired a lot of people without computer science degrees. But so I did computer science, a PSC, then an MSc. And then I really wanted to do a year abroad. So I... <laughs> It wasn't even Google. It was just the web. It was the web and it was all static and the pages took forever to load. But I went into the web and I found that a university had a master's degree in, what was it called? Computer speech and language processing. So I just applied. As you do, as you do, I applied to Cambridge University. It sounded interesting. Something you found on the web. Yes, it Perfect. truly was exactly like that. So somehow I found myself at the University of Cambridge doing a master's degree in teaching computers to understand human speech. So I did that and then I worked with one of my lecturers, started a company doing that. And we built the software in the airports when you've got the CNN screens mm. and they've got the subtitles. Yes. So we built that software. Well, rather, he built it. He was very bright. He's still very bright. <laughs> but I was part of the team doing maybe, I don't know, maybe I wrote like 10 lines of code. So it was like that. that closed captioning stuff where you see people talking and then it, it trans. So you like early days of like Siri and Alexa and all this stuff that we take for granted now because we talk to our computers without even thinking about how magical it is. Yes. And at the time, it was just like... It was so, for example, I could not test our system. I was never allowed to test our system because my accent just would not work. Mm -hmm. Because we only had the training data for white middle aged British men <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or mm -hmm. white uh, middle aged American men. So we had British English and then American English, and those were our training sets. So I did that for about five years, and then I had a I don't know. And it wasn't even midlife. I had a quarter of the life crisis and I went to India to do yoga for about four months. Then I moved back to the UK, but I moved to London because I wanted to study with a very specific yoga teacher, mm -hmm. which I did, Hamish. And I couldn't find any work in the field in London because the more kind of sciencey or technically or, or researchy work in technology was all outside Cambridge, Oxford, Reading. So my flatmate said, why don't you apply to an investment bank? And I said, sure, what's an investment bank? So you, you are one of these people that something comes along, it tickles your attention. You pay attention to that. Yes, I I always think that if I was a kid today, I don't know if they would have diagnosed me with something. Mm, of course they would have. Sure they would have. Yes. And they would have probably medicated you as well, which would have been a big mistake. 
Yes, I get easily distracted, but then when something captures my attention, I go for it, and I go for it with a sense of curiosity. So that is, when I moved to London, that's when I started receiving acupuncture for a torn hamstring, and then it was like a whole world, like I just couldn't believe how I could go there, and I hated needles, but I went there, and I walked out an hour later just feeling fantastic. Yeah, it's so bizarre, isn't it? It's like, how the hell did that happen? Yeah, it was just like, I just couldn't wrap my rational mind around it. But Mm -hmm. because I was doing so much yoga, there was another part of me that kind of resonated with it. For the next 10 years, I worked first at Goldman Sachs, then at JP Morgan. And I was receiving acupuncture every couple of weeks, every three weeks, I think. That was my kind of maintenance rhythm. And then in 2016, I went and resigned one day on the spot. Why acupuncture, though? What I mean, this is great. Like computers, investment banking, some yoga, super curious, like high in curiosity was a personality trait. And then, okay, you're getting acupuncture as a way of keeping your health good along with all the other things that you do. But why go study it? Why throw your life into this realm that you're in now that's apparently 180 degrees from where you'd been what happened well i've always been fascinated by the body i you know since i started doing yoga and even before that i was always um, into fitness so i was always quite inquisitive trained as a, a fitness instructor things like that so i just really wanted to i was always asking the questions and then when I resigned, it was my husband who said, you've always been fascinated with acupuncture and it might actually be a better fit for you. Mm -hmm. I think what happened is, so all my previous jobs have been mostly big corporations. So what happens in a corporation is you have a team and your team's got projects and then there are other teams with other projects and then there's always conflict. I used to walk into the office to conflict and spend my day dealing with conflict and you know, then just go home, rinse, repeat. Mm-hmm. When you are an acupuncturist, you want the patient to feel better. The patient wants to feel better. So you are the same two, team. Yeah. You are two people with the same goal. Mm-hmm. So it, there's an alignment. And to me, that was absolutely the right thing emotionally and also spiritually. I'm curious to know about the skills that you developed in doing investment banking, the skills that you developed in doing the computer work, the skills that you developed in working with groups and conflict and all that stuff, and how you brought it into your current practice. How does your previous experience inform some of the work that you do today? Because I don't think we throw anything away. No, we do not. There's the most basic stuff is that, and I think it came together during my third year when we started doing the student clinic. And from the beginning, I was super organized because I used to run teams of up to 30 people and you have to be organized to do that. So I was like, here's my calendar. Here's what I'm going to do to get patients. Here's my station. So just basic organizational skills really came to to use at that point. 
But I think for me, the more interesting side of it is that I think of trying to help people with acupuncture, I think it as debugging humans. Debugging humans. Yes. So for those people who are not computer programmers, when you write computer software, if you are very lucky, it works. If you're not so lucky, it doesn't work. Something's wrong and you call that a bug. And that story comes because in the very early times, computers were massive. They were the size of wardrobes. And I think there was one time when there, there were literally bugs inside one of them. <laughs> I heard that was the story that these computers, it might have had like 2K of memory or something. Something today we wouldn't even, it wouldn't even register, but it would like fill a whole room. And they had these electrical switches. They didn't even have like circuit bars. They had like electrical switches that would like flip back and forth. And evidently a moth was on one of these little circuits just as the thing was switching and it smashed the moth and it wouldn't complete the circuit. And someone had like had to go in. It's like, what's going on? Oh, look, there's like, there literally is a bug squished in this switch. And they took it out and taped it in their logbook and wrote, found the bug in the, in the computer. <laughs> There you go. I love all the stories and, you know, that and the, and the story of the, the coffee cam that invented like the webcams. I love all these stories. Wait, how did that happen? Oh, so I that, know that story. So that was at Cambridge University. Um, my master's degree was taught in between the engineering department where the ladies' toilets are in the basement because, come on, women. <laughs> but never mind. Computers. Well, there was really smart women in the basement. So that the men wouldn't feel threatened. It gets worse. Actually, then they have another ladies um, bathroom, but it's um, only for the secretaries. And that one had like marble and really nice fixings. Okay. All but right. never mind, leaving that, leaving that aside, the computer lab at Cambridge University is, is a maze. Like if you're actually in the computer room, well, I imagine they have many now, but at the time... <laughs> And you wanted to get a coffee, the little kitchenette where the coffee uh, pot was, you had to go down two floors and then back one floor. So by the time... Down two got, and up one. Yeah. So by the time you got there, it could be that the coffee had run out and you would have to start brewing coffee and it took long. So these two guys apparently found it very annoying and they literally invented a webcam to watch the coffee pot. If there was coffee, now's the time to go get it. Exactly. And that's the beginning of the, that little camera that's in all of our computers right now. Absolutely. Because I think one, one key um, characteristic of good computer programmers is that they're lazy. Or efficiency. You can call it that. But in the end, what that means is that you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over if you can find a cleverer way to do it. So is that lazy or is that intelligence? Exactly. I always say lazy as a joke, but, but yeah. I do yeah. I'm, I've spent a lot of time looking for shortcuts in my life only to realize there are no shortcuts other than to do the work. And if you do, the work is the shortcut. Yes. But there's also, again, in computer speech, you can optimize things. Uh, yeah. So when, okay, great. So yes, you can optimize things and, and you can do that in business. You can do that in lots of different places. So when you think about optimization in the Chinese medicine world, what does that look like? So that's one of the things. So 
one of the things that really um, attracted me to, to Chinese medicine is that the Western definition of health is the absence of disease. Mm-hmm. But that's not the Chinese medicine view. It's like just if you're like plodding alone, but you've got heartburn and your back hurts a bit and none of these actually needs you to go to A&E. But are you healthy, really? You can't quite bend over to tie your shoes. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't eat these foods anymore. These little places where there used to be function, but now there's not function. Yes. Those are the bugs that those we're trying bugs. to... We're trying to debug humans. So yes, and I'm not sure I ever got to explain what a bug is, but it's a mistake in the computer code that makes the software not quite do exactly what it's intended to do. So the mm-hmm. same way, humans are intended to be healthy and to be in full health, and they come to you because that's not the case. So you have to find the bug. What is the cause? What is the cause? Okay, they're not sleeping, but why are they not sleeping? Which line of code is the problem? I mean, it's fun talking a little computer talk because we're talking about debugging. Okay, that's finding and fixing a problem. But then you were talking about something else, which is optimization, which is taking something that it's already working. It's pretty good, but we can make it better. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing that I always get. I, I always do a little dance in my head when a patient that came for, I don't know, something after a few sessions says, oh, and by the way, I'm sleeping so much better and I'm not so stressed. And I'm like, yeah, we are optimizing you. We're optimizing. I think that's the first thing that got my attention with Chinese medicine is I had gone in for one thing, which over time did change. But before that changed, my sleep got better. My digestion got better. I didn't even know I had a digestive issue. And my mood was better. I was not so crabby and I wasn't so irritable. And I had no idea that those things had been happening in my life because I just adapted to this is the way my life is. So I think it can be really surprising for people when they first get acupuncture that all this other stuff changes. And it seems like a miracle to them. It does. So I went to acupuncture for the first time because I had a torn hamstring. That got fixed really quickly. But while we were doing the consultation, um, she said, she, she took the whole consultation. So she asked me about my periods and I was like, Pfft. I faint, I throw up, incredibly painful, I miss work, it's a misery. But I don't want to go on the contraceptive pill, which is what the doctors give me, because mm-hmm. the contraceptive pill makes me cry. <laughs> and she said, oh, we can fix that. We can fix that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, just that? like that. And I was like, really? No big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And she did. And that was the last time. And the, when was that? 2005. And ever since, I've not taken any ibuprofen um, or anything like that. So It gets your attention, doesn't it? Yeah. So one of the things we had a little bit of conversation in the email before sitting down for this conversation, and I remember one of the things that you were asking about was confidence. Like, where does confidence come from? Yes, I even today when, you know, I qualified 14 months ago, and I think it's going okay. 
you know, I, I have my little clinic and I am a teaching assistant at the college where I trained, but sometimes I leave my clinic and I get a bit of anxiety. I think it's because I'm tired, but it comes and I'm like, oh, did I do this right? Oh my God, I did this slightly delicate point. Oh my God, have I heard them? And then I think, is it okay that I feel like this or should I be like, no, nah, everything's fine. I'm doing a great job. Like what is healthy and, and what is good? Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. That's a great question. Wow. Have you got, I've got some thoughts about it. I'll share them with you, but I'm curious to hear your, more of your rumination on it first. Okay. Yeah, I can ruminate with the best of them. So I personally think it's better to not have full confidence because mm. I think that's when you can make mistakes and I would... If or when I make a mistake, I'll, t I'll tell you the story about the lost needle. That was a good one. So if and when I make a mistake, I, I strangely, but I will feel better if I was actually feeling a bit unsure. If I felt that I was in denial about the possibility that something was wrong, then I would be a little bit disappointed in myself. A little bit like the people that drive a car really fast because they think they're so good. That thing of being overconfident can, I have experience with this. It's like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Watch this. I always know when I'm in trouble. When, you know, I see something in the clinic, it's like, oh, this is crystal clear and it, and we're going to open a can of whoop ass on this thing and watch this, right? Here comes the magic, right? It's like, oh, they, they just pitched me the perfect pitch. I'm going to knock this out of the park. I know to be very careful in that moment. Yeah. Because overconfidence, the, the amount of confirmation bias that I'm looking at and the, the, the contraindications that I'm not looking at are probably really huge. Now, sometimes I am confident and I do know what to do and I do knock it out of the park and it, it is fine. But I found that to be a really tricky line because it's, I mean, Richard Feynman, the great physicist said, you must not be fooled and you are the easiest person to fool. It's so easy to fool ourselves. And so 
I think confidence is really important. We have to have a certain amount of sense that we know what we're doing. But overconfidence can be very blinding, and then you run into trouble. So I'm really with you on that, that if I'm going to be making mistakes, I want to do it with the awareness that I'm in troublesome territory or I'm in murky territory. And and the mistakes are part of that process of figuring out what actually is going on. You know, I had a teacher who, not just one teacher, many teachers have said this, that you do your very best to make a clear diagnosis and then you specifically treat exactly what that diagnosis is. Don't add anything. Don't take anything away. Look it in the eye. Treat it directly. Add nothing. Because the patient's response to your treatment will help you clarify your treatment. But if you're murky at, oh, some of this, some of that, I'll do this, I'll do that, blah, 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 nothing happens. Absolutely. And in a way, what if you have to debug your own treatment? So a new patient comes in and you give, you identify 10 different patterns and you put 30 needles on them. And then they come back and they're like, I actually felt worse. How do you know what is it? What was it that went wrong? What was it that didn't work? I am always of the school of less is more. And I guess Mm -hmm. that's what I found really interesting because all sorts of people come into acupuncture school and have different personalities and oh, I lost my ten, my train of thought. <laughs> We're talking about debugging our treatments. Yes. Oh, yes. I remember now. So I've met people who, from the beginning, from day one of acupuncture school, wanted to discuss the very, very subtleties of the most advanced aspects of Chinese medicine. And I was like, dude, I still can't distinguish between yin and yang. Yin and yang is the tough one. Yeah. Yin and yang is the, I think it's the most difficult because it encom- because it's very simple, it, but it encompasses everything. So if you're talking five phases, you're talking Liu Jing, six confirmations, it, it's a little easier to be concrete with things, but yin and yang, oof. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm all about get, get the basics, right? Like really, and I think, again, it does come from that background in computer science, I was incredibly lucky to um, start at it at the time when we wrote um, machine code. Do you remember machine code? Okay, so I have a confession to make. I worked in the high-tech industry for 10-ish years. I'm still doing high-tech. I've got a podcast, right? I use all the skills that I used to have. I could not write a single line of code if you put a gun to my head. No, just no code. No, no code. I can't do code. What I do, what I learned, what I had a knack for was figuring out the computer as a tool, as a system, what it could do, how I could interact with it, and then how I could use it to get things done, like writing a paper for school or helping people with their business or that kind of thing. So I was a technology translator. I get how the tool works. So like the tools that you would create... I could utilize them and I could talk to people in a language that would help them not be afraid of it and they could utilize it as well. But when it came to writing code, I cannot write code. That's but I can good. translate how the technology works. You were the vision guy. That's fine. I was part vision and I was part 
there's a lot of value in that. And we can go back to that later because you'll probably find yourself translating Chinese medicine to patients sometimes. Increasingly less and less. So. Well, okay, so yes, actually I do translate it to patients, but I don't, I do my utmost to translate it like I did with computers years ago, into the language that the patient uses in the way that they think. I gave up trying to teach people Chinese medicine years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, so when you write computer um, machine code before the computer scientists come at me. <laughs> yeah, what is that? What is machine code? So machine code is the most basic kind of programming language. So back in the days, it's the language that's actually embedded in the chips. These days, the chips come with Java in them. But at the time, you actually wrote it in hexadecimal code. So the chips would have the most basic functions. So they had add, multiply, and an or. I think that's all they could do. So they couldn't subtract. You had to write a routine for that. And then you have to manage the memory. You were like, I'm going to write this byte of data, like literally these eight bits at this specific address. You had to understand how that thing worked. And these days, the computer uh, programming languages, they're almost like speaking English. You're just saying, hey, do this thing for me. It's not quite like that, but they're, mm -hmm. they're really much more human friendly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But for me, having learned the basics just gave me such a solid foundation. And that's what I was hoping and I'm still hoping to do with Chinese medicine. I'm like, let me get the basics and then I will have time to become more proficient in the more advanced stuff. But I, there's no way I cannot do the advanced Chinese medicine if I cannot do the basics. I just My brain just doesn't work like that. I think the basics, I think the fundamentals are something that we can revisit and revisit, and they always have something to tell us. And they help us to understand the rest of it. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So if you can understand yin and yang, if you can really understand the generative cycle of the five phases and the control cycle of the five phases, really get it. Not, and not just in a theoretical way, but like knowing how to knowing how it works and seeing it in the world and knowing how to manipulate it with needles or diet or behavior or whatever, then you start to really understand some things about the medicine. And it's not theoretical. It comes out of your experience because, yeah, you've been working with the machine code of Chinese medicine. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I like thinking about it that way, that we're down there working with the machine code. Yeah. Right? Five phases as machine code. Yes, and then maybe Western medicine is the Java. It will do a lot for you, but you're not quite going to understand how it's doing it. Ooh. This is the other thing. I think we see this in our medicine as well, where sometimes people will look for like a protocol or like, oh, what are the needles to treat XYZ? All right, that, that's more of like some JavaScript. Yes. But that's not the machine code. It's like you may know that these needles do that, but you don't really know why. You might have a little story in your head, but do you really get it? Do you like grok it? Yeah, we had a student, a student, we had a patient in the student clinic the other day with headaches. 
And the big question for the student practitioner to figure out is, was it excess or was it deficiency? Oh my God, yeah. Because if you get that wrong, then the patient's not going to get better. Oh, and, and the whole thing goes off the rails. When I get lost in clinic, and of course, I don't know any practitioner at any stage of their practice that doesn't at times get lost in clinic. People are complicated and we have ideas and we think they're good ideas and then they get proven wrong by reality because our patients don't get better or sometimes they get worse. And that's the thing that I always go back to first. Whenever I'm lost, whenever I'm grasping for a theory and I know I'm lost when I grasp for a theory, I go back to that. Okay, Michael Max, Mr. Acupuncturist, is it excess or is it deficient? I go right back to that. That's always... It's like a reboot. It's my mental reboot. Yeah. And I think it's one of the key questions. So that's what I try to do. I try to, I try to get as far as I can without compromising what I know are the limits of my knowledge. Mm. What does that mean? That means that if I can back up my theory, if I can explain why I'm doing what I'm doing, then I'm good. But if I say I'm going to make something up and the acupuncturists are going to come after me, but never mind. If I say something like the yang of the liver has separated and has traveled up the do channel where it's met in 220, I know I'm just making this up and I know I'm just trying to be more sophisticated that my knowledge allows me to. And I know I'm, can I, can I use the word bullshitting? Oh, yes, you can. Are we bullshitting ourselves? Yes. If I make such a diagnosis, I know I'm bullshitting myself. Yeah. So the thing for me that's interesting about this is that it could go that way. You could have an issue at the top of the head, a vertex headache, and it could be because of the wood energy going up. That is a possibility. I just... It's So this to me is the really interesting fine point of what we do because we could make a theory and make these things connect. When you look at the inter, you know internal trajectory of these channels, these things connect and blah, blah, blah. We could make that up. The question for me always is, was it helpful? And if it's helpful, if that idea actually worked out, then we were right. And, and sometimes I look at it from this point of view of, okay, did I come up with the theory and I treated that way and so it worked. But there's other times I'll treat and sometimes it's, I'll find a point and I just know it's the right point to do. But I don't exactly have a theory to plug it into other than knowing this point seemed like the right one to do. And when I did it, the pulse changed. And when I did it, the patient's complexion got better and all the little markers that I use to see if a treatment is on or off said yes. And then I try to plug it into a theory and I go, I could make something up here. I could maybe reverse engineer it, but I don't know if that's actually true. It's, it's just that we happen to have all kinds of different theories that could explain it. Yes, and there's a lot of value in instinct, I think. And again, I think it's one of the things, because what happened to me is that 
I came to a point in my life where my life was a little bit schizophrenic because I was getting up very early. I have an Ashtanga yoga practice where six days a week I go to my yoga studio at five in the morning and mm. I practice for about an hour and a half. And I've had some really esoteric experiences in the 17 years that I've been practicing. So I was doing that. And then from there, I was getting on a bus and going to the most corporate world you can actually ever imagine. So it was almost like I had two capable sides of my brain, but they were not integrating at all. And now with acupuncture, I feel that there's more room for that. So I, I still like to be, to know that I'm not just making random stuff up. I like to know that I'm using my theory, but there is space for that instinct, that point sometimes when you think, you know what, let me just, as you say, you just have a feeling, you try it, and then, but in a way, that still is the scientific method because you are testing a theory, you are testing a hypothesis. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I think the scientific method is just one of the greatest inventions, one of the greatest thinking tools that's ever come along because it allows us to inquire into something, to come up with a question, phrase it as a hypothesis, and test it out. And I think we do this all the time in our practices. We call it a diagnosis. These days, I think of it more as a hypothesis. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think there's plenty of people in our profession. It's like, we don't really do science. We're doing this Chinese medicine. It's different. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think we very much are using the scientific method in the work that we do. And, and like you're saying, you sometimes get these inspirations. You get these ideas how many scientific discoveries, like the guy who came up with the, was it the benzene ring or something? One of these organic chemists was trying to figure out how some molecule worked. And he was like out for a walk one day and he like saw some kind of pattern in nature and went, that's what that thing is. And then came back and, you know, looked and tested it. So I, I think there's all these places where inspiration can come in. The question is, do you have a mental framework like you have from all the work that you've done and all the study that you've done? Do you have the mental framework to make sense of it in a way that can be useful and reproducible? Yeah, I think all these years working with computers have basically rooted me in that because you write code and it doesn't work and you can get mad at the world. But if the code doesn't work, it doesn't work and you're going to have to find the bug. It sounds a little bit like a Zen practice. Yes. <laughs> yes. And actually, the the best computer programmers I've ever met were quite meditative at it. And they were, they were also really creative. People tend to think of computer programmers as people who do really mechanical work. They think it's like putting bricks on a wall. But the really good ones, uh, good code is still, I haven't written a line of code for five years now. But if I see good code, I still get quite excited about it. Mm. So for many years, I've used WordPress for my sort of front door to the internet of my clinic and for many years for the podcast as well. And I, I think it was like in the early days of WordPress, there was like a little tagline somewhere in there that said something to the effect of code is poetry. Or it can be something quite horrible. Have you ever heard of the of? obfuscated code competitions. No, I haven't. 
It sounds a little bit evil. Yes, it is. And we can tie it actually with Chinese medicine. Or in my mind, I can. So there's a computer programming language called C. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I love C. I really, oh, it was my favorite. And C is very difficult to learn, but very powerful because you have a lot of control on it. So what happens is you can write code in C that's unreadable. And they used to make competitions where you would get a one line of what looked like absolute garbled junk, and you had to figure out what is it that it did. Now, in Chinese medicine, sometimes I wonder if when we feel insecure, we start viewing as genius. So someone comes and gives you a lecture and it doesn't make any sense. You've not understand you've not understood anything. So is that because you lack the knowledge to understand that, or is it because they were talking rubbish? Very good point. Very yes. I can remember being a student and sitting in classes and sometimes listening to people and go, man, maybe in I get I think they're probably brilliant because I can't really understand what they're saying. Maybe in five years I will, and then I get down the road five years and I go, No, that was actually bullshit. Yeah. Or sometimes you get down the road five years and you go, Yeah, that really was brilliant. And I've got some more work to do. Yeah, sussing out like the the jing from the dross. So how do you do that? Oh God. That's yeah, that's a difficult one. I think it comes down to asking the stupid question. So if you're in a lecture and you just don't understand anything, ask a basic question. If the lecturer gets offended by your question or doesn't answer it directly, then I'm going to stand up and say that person's bullshitting. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. And I think we could take that in any realm whatsoever, not just Chinese medicine. But yeah, any realm, if someone isn't quite making sense and you come back to something really basic that you should be able to, un- that you should be able to explain to an eight-year-old and they get offended or they go off on a tangent or they double down on being more obtuse, yeah, then bullshit detector really starts going wild, doesn't it? I used to do that at work all the time. I would say to my people, can you give me the grandma explanation? Yes. And if they can't, then I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure I buy your story then. It's one of the things that I, over the years, have learned to do for myself as well. It's like, if I can't explain what I'm doing in my treatment to, again, an eight, I think of it as an eight-year-old, grandma's eight-year-old, same kind of thing, then I'm probably off base somewhere. Then I'm probably bullshitting myself. Yeah. I think my husband always says that he thinks the true sign of intelligence is to be able to explain complex concepts with um, clarity and explain them easily. I think that's true. It's hard. It's hard. And it, it's, I think it takes some fortitude and recognition of our own deficiencies in understanding to recognize that, oh, maybe I don't understand this as well as I thought I did. And it's especially hard. It's like, wow, I've studied this for three years and I practiced it for however many I have, and I still can't quite explain it. It's it's daunting at times. So yeah. what do you do when 
you realize I understand a piece of it, but there's a part that I don't quite get yet. How do you, what do you do at that point? I go to my community. I'm, so here's what happens. I'm a very petite Spanish woman speaking a language that's not her native language. So that right, is... Because machine language is your native language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I speak in hexadecimal code. The, the joke about the binary, you know, the two kinds of people, those who understand um, binary and those who don't. <laughs> no, ten, ten kinds of people. I can't even tell the joke. So the three kinds are? No, sorry. The joke is there are 10 kinds of people, those who understand binary and those who don't. That's a little bit of a geeky joke there. It is, yes. I am. In this framework of Mm. petite foreign woman Mm -hmm. in computer science, in investment banking, I can't, I could never afford to bullshit anyone. Oh, of course not. No. You had to bring beyond the A game. Exactly. It's like, and people were very nice to me, investment banking. There's always all sorts, but there's all sorts in all paths in life. But I didn't fit the stereotype of a computer scientist. So, for example, I've seen other foreign people actually get from the get-go much more immediately accepted. But that's because they fell into the stereotype but I didn't, so I could not afford to bullshit. I had to be really clear in my explanations of things, and I had to really either say something I was sure of or shut up or ask the damn question. So over the long haul then, that actually worked in your favor. It made you better than you otherwise might have been. I think so. It's one of those things where... The difficulties always end up making you stronger, but it was the saying, it will pass. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. <laughs> it's the first time I've heard it that way. I like that. <laughs> it might pass like a kidney stone. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is curious that so often the things that are a deep trouble for us, that we could complain about things being unfair or not right or not equal or whatever. If we just put that to the side and double down on doing the work and allowing that to change us in some way and make us better at what we do, it turns out to be really helpful. Yes, to be honest, I complained a lot. <laughs> I was quite well known for, for, you know, I was very involved in the whole women in technology thing, sometimes with more success than other times because my delivery can be a little bit Spanish at points. Hot Spanish blood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit bland, you know. It's a Spanish person in the UK, so when someone comes and says, oh, how interesting... In my my very Spanish computer scientist, very literal mind, I translate that and my machine code says, oh, they're finding this interesting. They're finding this interesting. But in reality, when a British person says how interesting, they're probably saying, what rubbish are you talking about? Right. Yeah. You have to know how to translate it. Exactly. I, I keep coming back to how you have this mind that can do machine code, but it also can do Chinese medicine. 
So from that perspective, because we've got all these theories and different ways of putting things together, what would you consider the machine code of Chinese medicine? I think the machine code is probably the eight principles. Mm. Is it internal? Is it external? Is it cold? Is it hot? You ask those questions, and then once you've got that, if you want, you can go beyond and be a bit more sophisticated than that. But if you don't get that right, then you're, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your diagnosis is. It's not going to be correct. So we have to come back to that one. I think so. I'm, I'm a huge believer on, of, in the basics, maybe because I'm still a bit basic myself. <laughs> in recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. No, I, it, that resonates for me in a big way. Again, I was mentioning a little earlier in the conversation how I get lost in clinic. The very first thing I go back to, is it excess or is it deficient? And then I'll look at, is it hot or is it cold? Yeah. So those, yeah, those basics are pretty damn reliable. Yes. And then there's so much logic in Chinese medicine. When you look at the um, signs and symptoms of every single pattern that you study as a student of Chinese medicine, they all make sense. And I'm trying to think of one, but of course now my mind's totally blanked. But do you know what I mean? Like if someone says, oh, help me out here. I'm running out of <laughs> brain. Yeah, I'm often, and I was mentioning a little bit earlier that I do a treatment. Some of it is because I'm, I'm right very much in alignment with a certain way of thinking and a theory and certain principles that I'm working with. But then sometimes there's points that show up and... It's like out of the blue, and now I'm now I'm into scientists. Let's test, test a hypothesis land. But when I go to start putting that into like some kind of framework, so I can make sense of it, so I could maybe repeat it, or so I could understand it. Yeah, dropping it into the eight principles is is where I begin. So, I'm just trying to think if I could pull up a patient in my mind. Of course, whenever you're on the spot, the mind wants to... Uh, yeah. But for example, you get a list of things for, let's say, 
stomach yin deficiency or, or stomach heat. And they, one of the signs and symptoms is you burp or you throw up. Why? Because the function of the stomach chi is, is supposed to go downwards. So if that's blocked, if the chi is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, then if it doesn't go down, either it stays there or it goes back up. Mm-hmm. So that symptom makes sense. It's logical. And you could look at it from, is it blocked, which is an obstruction, which is an excess, or is it just weak, which is a deficiency? You know, and, and those two parameters will dramatically change how you're treating things. Because if it's blocked, you're looking to open things up. That could be a really strong, aggressive treatment. And if it's weak, oh, now you just might need some gentle tonification. You've just made me think of decision trees and, and pruning trees is algorithm theory for computer science where we use them a lot in speech recognition. So I start talking and you don't know what my next word is going to be. So there's a possibility of thousands of words that I could utter next. But with the history of what I've said so far, that's going to help you prune that tree of possibilities. Am I making sense? I watch this happen on my phone when I'm doing like speech to text and I'll watch it write out a word and it'll come up with one word that sounds like another one. But because of the words that come after it, it will self-correct itself. Or sometimes it will be the right word, but then it puts the wrong word in later, but I didn't go back and double check it. And that's why speech to text can be so hilarious if you don't check it later. Oh, you should have seen it 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I can see that. And and we often see these decision trees, like in the the various textbooks, especially the beginning textbooks, yin, yang, and you go down a certain decision tree. We all learn from those. And then we also learn that you can't put people in boxes, even though boxes are a helpful way in organizing our thinking, right? It's like use the boxes and then the boxes disappear. It's kind of a, a magic trick. With the background that you've got, in decision trees and pruning them and algorithms and ways of thinking. Is there a way, I'm trying to think of how I phrase this, because one of the tricks to learning Chinese medicine is learning to think both in a decision tree fashion and at the same time think in a, which is, and that's very linear. Yeah. But at the same time, we're taught to think in a very circular, nonlinear fashion. Both of these things are true pretty much simultaneously. Does that make sense to you? It does. And I think in a way that's where I managed to integrate those two sides of my brain, mm-hmm. where I was having all these, I can't remember which one is, which one's the rational, which one's the more of like arty or intuitive brain. But in my yoga practice, I was having all these kind of like intuitive, being one with the world experiences. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the day I was doing maths. And now I find that it's all a bit more morphed together, which is quite nice. They are so different, those two different ways of thinking and being. And they're, but much like yin and yang, where apparently we have these two things and they're completely opposite. They really do speak to a greater unity. Yes, and I'm thinking right now, for example, I think one good 
example of this is I do lately, I don't know, I don't know if, I don't know what is it about lockdowns that are making people want to have babies. <laughs> you can guess the basic, but anyway, there are a lot of people trying to have babies right now. And there are women that are driving themselves crazy. All this technology these days, the ovulation sticks and the things that you can actually where to track your temperature. I see women trying to debug the fertility thing in a really hardcore, logical way. If the heart-uterus connection is not happening. Yes. And what about that thing of paying attention to your body because you're just paying attention to your body? I mean, yes, we've got all these devices these days that will tell you everything from your blood oxygen to your heartbeat to how many steps you've walked to how long you've been aerobic or not we can we can totally digitize and quantify our life these days but can we feel what our life feels like we can pick up and look at our whatever device we're wearing it'll tell us how we slept but do we actually know how we slept from the inside is the question that i'm raising these days. And I think I hear you saying something similar. I've got patients like this too. The, the blah, blah, blah says that I'm going to ovulate, da, 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 da. It's like, okay, so like, are you feeling attracted to your husband? Are you guys enjoying sex? Are you even making time for it? And they're like, yeah, 1235, that's the time we have to do it because I'm ovulating then. I don't know. I think if I was a spirit <laughs> wanting to come into this world, I'd be wanting to come in with parents that were a little less OCD. But yeah, that's, so this is an interesting thing. And I'm curious to see how, because you've got that very analytic part of your mind. And you've also got the many years of yoga practice part of your mind. What I'm curious about is how they talk to each other. How do they connect with each other? Because they both have deeply valuable information. How do you get those two pieces talking to each other? That's a most excellent question that I don't even know if I have the answer to. I think for me, it really comes down to something so basic as try to remove stress from my life. Stress kills me. Stress mm -hmm. honestly kills me. It's, it's made me so sick over the years. And, and that my, the analytical part of my brain then tries to fix it. I have to, if only I could find the solution, if only I could debug myself. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work like that. It doesn't. And this morning, I woke up yesterday. I woke up yesterday. I was going to pet my dog who was sat next to me on the sofa. And I pulled a muscle. I, put a, I pulled an intercostal muscle. And I was like, oh, um, I'm truly middle-aged now. So this morning I went to yoga and my yoga practice after some serious injuries coming back to the more advanced poses. And I was quite worried. I was like, am I going to be able to backbend really deeply? Is this going to hurt? And fear was activating quite um, strongly. And for me, the answer was to, what? I'm just going to practice and see what my body feels like. And the moment I drop the expectations, that's when I do my best work. And now I'm actually coming up with an example, which is when I was 17, I was going to sit what's called here in the UK, your A-levels. So 
they're the last set of exams that you sit before going to university. So in Spain at the time, you had three years of high school. They averaged your grades for those three years. Then you sat those exams and the average of those exams and your three years, that was your final grade. And then, for example, in computer science, they said, we have 30 spaces. So of the people that apply, the top person gets the spot number one. Anyway, two weeks, was it two weeks? No, it wasn't. Six weeks before my A-levels exam, I was horseback riding and I fell and I was run over by a horse. So I spent two weeks in hospital with a tube into my stomach because I had some severe pancreatitis. That's a heck of a way to prepare for your exam. Yes. So the principal of the school came to visit and she said, don't worry, you can't resit your exams next year. And I didn't want to do that. So I said, I'll sit them. I, it doesn't matter what grades I get. I'll, I just want to sit them because I don't want to be left behind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I did incredibly well. And I think I did incredibly well because I had given up on expectations. I was like, come on, I've been in hospital. I've come out weighing 40 kilograms, which is, I don't know, under seven stone or something like that, under 100 pounds. So no one expected me to even pass. And to me, that was incredibly freeing. It's interesting, isn't it, that we can prepare and prepare and prepare. And at a certain point, we just have it or we don't. Yes. And the very best thing at that time is not to stress about what we have or not have, but to just let it go and, and like find out what's there. And in a way, because I got some access to some education like Cambridge University or some jobs like I literally, <laughs> so when my, when, I, when my flatmate said, why don't you work in investment bank? I was like, sure. So I managed to get some interviews. I think the first one was with um, Lehman Brothers. And I went there because, I don't know, I looked it up and somehow I convinced myself that they were a boutique operation. <laughs> the, what kind of operation? A boutique operation, like a small office with maybe 50 people. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's one of the bigger boutique operations. <laughs> exactly. But when you go into an interview like that and you don't think of the enormity of the thing that you are doing, then you can, you're relaxed and then you actually do better than when you are so desperately trying to perform. Yeah. You know, they, this kind of advice is all over in the Tao Te Ching, right, where it just talks about being in the natural flow It's like you just show up with who you are. And yeah, I think there's really something to that. When you show up and you're really trying, it's obvious when we're trying. And if you show up in not, I don't want to say casual, but back to the the beginning of this conversation, like confident, you show up with a kind of a confidence and confidence doesn't mean that at all confidence. It just means that you're comfortable with where you are and who you are. And I don't know about you. I mean, I spent a lot of my life self-employed, but I have had some jobs and all the very, very best jobs I've had were jobs that I was not qualified for when I got the job. I had the potential and I had the thirst and I had the desire, but I didn't necessarily have everything that was needed to do the job, but I did have the potential. And for whatever lucky reason, I've had people that hired me for that. 
And some of it, I think, is trust in ourselves. It's like, I can do this job. Yeah. So I opened my clinic literally as soon as I could after graduating. And some people are like, wow, you opened your clinic so quickly. Uh, how did you do that? And I was like, well, I trust that I received a really good education at the City College of Acupuncture where I trained. I trust them. I trust that they gave me all that I needed to start my own clinic. Oh, you had something else too. Yeah, you know how to organize. Yes. <laughs> you know how to organize, right? You organize teams of people. And so like organizing an acupuncture clinic, it's a walk in the park. You could do that in one afternoon. Yeah, it wasn't the hardest part for me. No, no. Organizing an acupuncture clinic is not difficult, especially when you've had your training and you basically know how it runs and you've had all the experience that you've had with organizing large groups and big organizations. Organizing an acupuncture clinic, eh, that's a holiday. Am I wrong about that? So something that was quite interesting is part of the training we received when we were in our last year in the student clinic, the college provided some patients because there are some patients that have been going there knowing that there's a student clinic for many years. But we were also expected to bring our own patients in. Mm. And some people were really unhappy about that. They were like, no, I'm a student. I'm paying money here. The college should provide my patients. But the way I saw it was well, fine, then I'll have patients for a year and then I'll graduate, open my clinic and how are they going to find me? I think that's brilliant. I, the school asked you to bring in your own patients. So they were teaching you while you were in school how to develop a patient following. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, and they're really hardcore about that. Like you get a re records of your patients and then they look at everything. They look at your retention rate. They look at feedback from the patients. They request feedback from the patients. It's, it's all those things that how, how are you supposed to know? Yeah, especially if you've not done it before. No, I, I think that's great. I think that's an essential piece of the education. It's not just how do you treat patients? How do you reach out to patients? How do you get patients to come in? How do you retain patients? It's more than just doing the good work of acupuncture. There's a whole lot of other stuff that goes with it. It's, yeah, so you were well-trained. No wonder you started off right away. There's this thing as well. When I was working in my corporate job, I got sent into a lot of training. They, they train you to become a manager. They train you into a lot of soft skills. Mm -hmm. And usually because you get evaluated every year on a lot of stuff, usually they tell you, you're not very good at timekeeping. So you get sent onto a timekeeping course. But there was someone, and honest to God, I can't even remember who this person is, but they, he, she, it, said something that changed my life in a way. They said, forget about what you are not very good at. Stop putting effort into that because you'll only get to make yourself acceptable at it. But if you can outsource it, do that. And then you have time to focus on what you are good at. So now I've got to the point in my clinic where I'm starting to think, should I hire a PA or some sort of, you know, admin assistant? Should I get someone to do my social media? Why? Because I can do those things because I'm organized and I've put all that work into. Do I enjoy them? Not really. Mm -hmm. 
but I would never actually ask someone to do something that I've not done myself. It's helpful to know the process because then you can manage the person who's helping you. Yeah, and also think I think there's a certain kind of humility in having done the work that then you are asking someone else to do. Say more about that. So I have a cleaner. I have a lovely lady who comes and helps me clean the house because when my husband and I were working all the hours under the sun, the last thing we wanted to do was to clean the house on Saturday mornings. But I can clean my house if I have to. Because I can do that, I... She's an equal to me. She's this lovely lady that comes in. And if I'm around because I don't have a lot of patience at the end, then we have a chat. I actually sometimes put some needles in her. Mm. So because I have cleaned, I value the work she does. And I would never, ever want to lose that. Yeah, thank you. That's, I hadn't quite seen her from that perspective. Oh, it's really touched you, isn't it? Yeah, it did. Oh. Huh. Thank you. So it's probably about time to wind this down, although we could probably go on and on and on. We could. <laughs> <laughs> Again, originally we, we came to this conversation because we wanted to talk something about confidence. Yes. And I'm curious, now that we're here at the end of this conversation, what you have to say to the listeners about your sense of confidence, especially as a new practitioner. Yes. So I would say just if you've put the work in, then trust in the work, trust the work that you have put in. For me, that really is, I've put the work in, so I'm going to trust that that's a first good step. And then my other piece of advice would be count your needles. <laughs> because I lost one needle once and it was the worst 20 minutes of all my three years of education. Oh my goodness. Yes, I had a patient and I was treating her for hay fever. So she had some needles. She had some needles in her ears. Then she said, oh my God, I really have to sneeze. I'm blocking up. I need to sit up. She was laying down. So I said, okay, okay, let me take. I took the needles in her hands up so that she could sit up. She sneezed and she lost one of the ear needles. So because I had counted my needles, I was like, we are missing one. And it was horrible. I called my supervisor. We stripped her. We stripped the, the poor woman down to her underwear. <laughs> we were crawling the floor of the student clinic with our iPhone torches looking for the needle. 20 minutes later, we were like, we're really sorry. We, we can't find the needle. If you find it, please come back and bring it so that we can dispose of it safely. And she was quite chill about it. She was like, yeah, it's fine. She left and she came back five minutes later. So what happened is she was wearing one of those really molded padded bras. Sometimes they're so stiff that they don't quite sit on your skin. So the needle literally fell in there. And when she went to the bathroom and she moved her clothes around, the needle poked her boob. <laughs> so yes, count your needles because it's count a horrible needles. feeling. That's great. Vanessa, thank you so much for the time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Confidence does not come easily, nor should it.
It can only arise from having lived through difficult circumstances. The polish of confidence comes from lessons painfully learned. True confidence lacks bravado. It's more quiet than boasting. Confidence isn't trying to sell you anything. It's more like a reliable companion who will have your back when trouble shows up. I hope that you have found this conversation to be helpful. I so appreciated Vanessa's transparency and spirit in exploring this tender and vital issue. One last thought before we say goodbye for today. I I can't remember where I saw this, but it's helped me through moments of struggles with confidence. Here's the quote. The good thing about failure is that it shows you that you're tougher than you thought you were. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. (music) 